Welcome to Inside America's Minds, a series of original podcasts created and hosted by clinical psychologist, Dr. Jody J. DeLuca. Inside America's Minds features fascinating conversations with everyday people like you and me and their extraordinary experiences. Join us for this thought-provoking episode on Inside America's Minds. Hello, well, welcome to another edition of Inside America's Minds. Today I have with me Scott Prendergast. Scott is a full-time mental health inspirational speaker and advocate. You have a platform, Scott, Minding Your Mind, Navigating Life Through the Lens of Hope. The Lens of Hope is your podcast, is that correct? Yes, yeah, I have a podcast called <laughs> yeah. The it's great. The lens of hope. I love it. And of course, I love the fact that you're an advocate for the field of mental health, behavioral health. Um, I love the fact that your platform focuses in on reducing the stigma surrounding mental health, especially when there's been so many people experiencing mental health, also known as behavioral health today, crises with the pandemic, with the, with the whole political landscape of the country, and, and just the financial duress for so many during these difficult of days. So you're a graduate of Temple University, and that's in Philly, right? Philly, Pennsylvania? Okay, yes. and your major was in public relations, but you specialized in public speaking. You are an excellent public, excuse me, you are, I am not, see that? You are an excellent public speaker. Um, so Inside America's Minds is about everyday people like you and me with extraordinary experiences and your life experiences in particular are extraordinary, which is why it's such a privilege to have you as a guest on the show. So I wanna start with Scott, if I may, how did you become a mental health advocate and inspirational speaker? Yeah, of course. Well, of course, you know, first things first, thank you for having me on the show, Jody. I really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And to kind of dive into where this all began for me, it started in college. Well, really, let's take it back to high school. So in high school, in the early part of college, I struggled with depression. Uh, it was always there. It was always kind of a thorn in my side, but I didn't pay much attention to it. However, as I got deeper into college, it became a serious problem for me. And so the point where I got to a state in my life where mm. it completely consumed everything and every aspect of me. I could barely get out of bed in the mornings. I couldn't think about anything besides the sadness and being in this dark pit in my life. But I came to a point where I said, okay, you know what? I need to do something about this. I need to do something to try to pull myself out of this dark place. So I started to write. I would write all the time, even in class when I wasn't supposed to. I would just be writing all the time about the things that I was feeling. And over time, I said, you know what? I know I'm not the only person to feel this way before. I know there are other people out there feeling like this. So I started to write for this website and where I would write about college students going through depression and mm. what their everyday life is like. And it got a lot of traction. And ultimately, an organization called Minding Your Mind, a nonprofit, found out about me and I started to work with them. And their mission is to really lessen the stigma surrounding mental health. So, so that's Minding Your Mind? I'm sorry to interrupt. Minding Your Mind? Okay, go ahead. That's correct. That's the name of the organization. They contract me out. And okay. To them, I also have my own brand, which is called Scotty P Inspiration. And that's where I have my podcast called Navigating Life Through the Lens of Hope. And I just work on, you know, a little bit of a broader audience as opposed to only students. But with Scotty P Inspiration, it's everybody, all people in this world. And so ultimately, my goal with these programs and what I do and the speaking that I mm. do is I want to validate other people's feelings. I want to let them know that what they went through is real. It's okay to talk about it. And most importantly, you can move forward past those difficult times in life. And together through addressing it, we can move past those mental obstacles that hold you and I back from whatever it is that we're desiring in our lives. So that's kind of a little bit about okay. my story and where I've been. Okay. And what I'm so doing. I, I want to take us back. When was the first memory, the first realization you had at what age, when, if you can even remember where, that something was not right, something was not right, and it was depression? When was that, Scott? Yeah, that's a great question, Jody. And I think if I want to go all the way back, this is, this is really going back. When I was yeah. in preschool, 
I remember preschool and kindergarten, I used to get so upset to the point where I felt like I was almost going to throw up every day before I would go to school because I was afraid to leave my mom. And I didn't want to go and, you know, be out of my normal comfort zone. And that was that first kind of sign of anxiety that I had in my life. And it was Mm. constant, but I never really put a name to it. And as I got older, that constant anxiety was always there. And as we know, when your body's under that constant stress response, it can lead to depression. And I think the first sign for me with depression was when I was in high school, I remember getting to the point where I just didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to do my schoolwork. I didn't want to hang out with friends. I didn't even want to work. I didn't want to get out of bed or do anything at all. How how does that feel though? You're describing it, but how it's so hard to quantify, Scott, because it's emotion and emotion is difficult to quantify and make tangible, but because there's so many people that experience depression can, can you take a moment and describe that, that darkness, that feeling, not getting out of bed, but can you go beyond that a little bit? Yeah, that's an awesome question, Jody. And I think the feelings kind of can be equated to this. It feels as if you've slipped through this unknown crack in the earth and nobody uh-huh. knows it's there and nobody will ever find it. And you're constantly there and you can see everything going on, but you can't partake in it. That's a little bit how it felt like with me. And it feels like that the weight of your world is not only the weight of the world is not on your shoulders, Mm. but it's in your stomach and it's a pit. And it just feels like you want to partake in these different things. You want to have a normal life. You want to be happy. You want to do this. You want to do that. But it feels like there's this constant tug on the inside of you reminding that you can't do it because of this or because of that. And that's really what it felt like with me in in that dark place in depression. How was it socially? How did it affect you socially when personally you were so encapsulated in that abyss of depression? Yeah, that's another fantastic question. And for me, it was was a a constant struggle because I wanted to be social. I was like, Scott, you know, go up and talk to those people. You know, Scott, go up and talk to that girl, whatever it is. And I wanted to do these things more than anything. But something was constantly holding me back, that depression on the inside. And then that led to me self-loathing myself. And I would say, Scott, what's wrong with you? Why can't you go talk to those people? Why aren't you getting up and going to the prom? Why aren't you doing this or doing that? And I would beat myself up and become my own biggest critic, which in turn would lead to me, you know, falling back into that negative self-talk more, which would in turn lead to me even more isolating myself. Okay. And so it was very difficult socially, for sure. Now, is there any family history of depression or anxiety, Scott? I'm not really sure. You know, I have my, I I think so, but it's not something that has ever really been brought up. Okay. Um, But I would definitely say I could see it for sure. But I don't know clinically if there's anything actually there or not, but if I had to guess, I would say for sure there definitely is. So, so from even preschool, you remember having this emotional uncomfortableness. And then middle school, now today, well, it has been for decades, middle school is a war zone for a lot of kids that I work with. But how, how was it for you? Because that is, we know stereotypes start as, as young as three. Uh, but middle school, oh my gosh, is when the cliques just seem to flourish how was middle school for you? Yeah, middle school was a difficult time, uh, trying to find out who I was, where I fit in. And when I was in middle school and high school, basketball, the sport of basketball was everything to me. And yeah. I kind of attached my self-worth to that sport. Okay. And that's what I took all my pain, all my anger, all my fear. I just took it and I put it towards that. And I kind of buried myself in the sport. And I put all my eggs in one basket, so to speak, thinking that basketball was going to be the key to all my answers. And for, so for middle school, for me, it was just, I didn't want to hang out with people that much. I didn't really do anything besides play this sport because that was my escape. Okay. But ultimately the problem was, is that when I got into ninth grade, the end of middle school, early of high school, I actually got cut from my team. And oh so then, my, I got to step you there. What was that like? Oh right, my God. Right. It was, it was crazy because I felt like my self-worth had been taken away because I yeah. convinced myself that basketball was all that I had. And now that that was gone, I was like, well, goodness, I really can't do anything, right? I really don't have anything. Hmm. And that's where that depression started to really kick in after that. Okay. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a psychological amputation. I mean, it's especially because you've got a foundation of questioning your self-worth and then something you love so much, you're passionate about, and then that is no longer there. So, you, you know... One of the things that you mentioned is that 
you focus on overcoming everyday obstacles that hold us back in life, which I think is important. And you also work within the health and fitness industry, which I want to get to a little bit later. So this happens in the ninth grade. You're cut from the team that probably was the limited socialization that you had and was your passion. What happens next? I have to ask because most individuals would have started to self-medicate. Right. And that's a, that's a great point. I get that question a lot. And for me, thankfully, I was raised up in an environment where I knew from a, a very young age that medication, you know, whether self-medicating was not a route I wanted to go. You know, I knew that, hey, you know what? Things are tough right now. I'm not happy, but I know that's only going to make my life worse. So I was aware of that. Okay. But instead, you know, what my kind of addiction became was picking myself apart from every angle. You know, every time I tried something, I would say, Scott, you're worthless, you're pathetic, you don't matter, you can't do anything right. And I would compare myself to everyone else and say, look what they have, look what they're doing. And I would look at myself and say, you're worthless, Scott, because you're this, you're this, you're this. And it's almost as if I would make lists and telling myself all the reasons why I was nothing. And that became kind of my addiction, really, as strange as it sounds. No, no, because it's, I mean, the emotions are housed in the limbic portion of the brain, the emotional part of the brain. And that's where addictions are housed as well, we could say. And, and so it's self, uh, you, every, every time you wrote down a reason why you weren't good or why you couldn't excel, it was reinforcing that negative belief system that you were in. It's kind of like people getting, are addicted to worrying. They worry about worrying. And there's uh, so many different neurochemicals that are, you know, administered from the brain throughout the body when we're stressed, when we're anxious, the cortisol, the adrenaline, and the brain gets used to it and it becomes a baseline of how we navigate life. So it sounds like you were there, you were there. And now we have to hear, how did you get out of it? Do you remember the moment, that turning point when you made the decision to step outside of that box? Yeah, I think for me, the real big turning point was my junior year in college. So for multiple years, I was back and forth. You know, I was in that dark place. I, maybe I'd come out of it for like a week or two, a couple of weeks, depending upon if something good happened. And then I would fall back in it. But then junior year of college, I remember I came to a point where I was watching this TV show and this pastor, T.D. Jakes, was on the show. And he said something very simple. I don't know exactly remember what it was, but he was saying how it's a decision that we make every day with our mindset. And I was like, man, you know what? You know, I want to work on that. And I realized that depression isn't always a decision. It's a chemical imbalance in the brain. Sometimes mm -hmm. we can't always control that. But I realized what I can control is how I react to this depression. I can put in the work. I can put in the effort to try my very best to do everything that I can in my control mm -hmm. to pull myself out of this. And what I started to do is that every time I had a negative thought, and we're talking, this was multiple times a minute, I would say, mm -hmm. I would stop myself. I'd say, no, I'm not letting this negative thought in. I'm going to let it pass on through. It's going. And then I'm going to replace that with a positive one. So here's an example I always use. I remember I got a bad test grade on a test once or multiple times. And I would say to myself before anything else, Scott, you are so stupid. And you can see how that little negative thought that plants a seed, right? And then all throughout the day, I was telling myself, you're so stupid. You'll never graduate. You'll never get a job. You'll never get married. You'll never be happy, so on and so forth. But then I would stop myself and I figured, okay, let me change this up. And if I got that bad test grade, I would then say, no, I'm not stupid. I just need to learn the material in a different way. I need to adjust my approach and I need to work on it in a way that's better fitted for me. And that type of process is mm. what I really started to do, changing my own self-talk and changing my kind of lens that I was looking at things through. And over time, because as we know, this takes a lot of practice and resilience, I started to see that mindset change. And when I woke up in the morning, I wasn't saying, Scott, your life is worthless. I was saying, no, Scott, you have reasons to get up today. And they're this, they're this, and they're this. And I was just filling my mind with these positive things. Even if I didn't believe it, I was just trying everything I could. And ultimately I started to see that change happen, um, you know, in junior year and the senior year. And then once I graduated. Well, and, and it sounds like the implementation of, of my modality, my primary modality is cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, because it's all about recognizing triggers and understanding the emotions that turn into these thoughts that are sometimes distorted and how they affect decisions and behaviors. And I did notice that you also implement, and this was on your website, a practical approach of mindful strategies combined with compassion. 
to help others validate their own feelings and work towards moving past the challenges in life. And that's what cognitive behavioral therapy is about as well. So it's about, well, I want to hear it from you. So talk to us, when you give your seminars and your workshops, how would you, how do you present to people how to get started with that, identifying the negative thoughts, and then working towards conditioning and repatterning the brain for positive thoughts? Absolutely. And it's such a process, as you know. And for mm-hmm. me, the interesting thing is, is that I Googled this stuff initially. I somehow found out about CBT and I was like, well, I can do this. I can do this right now on my own. And that's really how I started to get into it. Um, So one of the things that I did and I do when I'm speaking to people is I say, okay, throughout the day, I want you to, you know, take some time to reflect five minutes, three different times a day, or maybe even just two minutes, three different times a day, a couple of minutes. And I want you to write down what thoughts have been dominating your mind throughout that day. You know, what thoughts are they, what thoughts and feelings? So maybe anger, maybe feeling inferior, maybe feeling worthless, whatever they are, Mm. write them down three different times throughout the day. Do that for a couple of days, and then you'll start to see that pattern. And what's happening here is we're becoming aware now, like, okay, you know what? I've been thinking a lot about how I'm worthless because of, mm-hmm. you know, so-and-so outperforming me in my job, whatever it is, right? So what I do is I let people know, like, hey, we have to recognize this first. We can't just let whatever comes in our head just take over and just run with it, right? We've right. got to see these things. And by writing it down, now the next time that we think, we think that thought, we're going to say, wait a minute. I wrote this down before. I'm recognizing this. And that's kind of that first step. And then after that, as we know, of course, it's a process, but it's about kind of, you know, implementing, changing that self-talk. And that's one of the big things. I love positive self-talk. I think it is so huge. It's so simple, but it is so important. And what I always tell people is like, hey, you've got to change what you're saying right there. Now, if you're saying, hey, my life doesn't matter. And you're saying it's because this, this, and this, we say, no, my life does matter here's why. And we're finding three reasons that we're pulling from our experiences to kind of, you know, provide that evidence for ourselves. Because as we know, with our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions are all connected, we got to start at that thought. So if we put in good thoughts, we're not letting that feeling get to, you know, worthlessness, inferiority, and then our actions aren't going to follow it. So I always talk about catching those thoughts at the first sight. And one of the best ways to do that is to write that. Yeah. What I recommend is that my people keep a worry jar too. So they can have that extra cue, like if that negative thought or if that worry, if it's ruminating or perseverating on the same thought or worry, they can write it down, put it in the jar or throw a bean or a button or whatever they want in it. And that seems to help. What do you recommend, Scott, if somebody has a lot of stressors going on, like we just went through this pandemic, a lot of people lost their jobs, financially they're in duress, a lot of relationships were in jeopardy, uh, health, people were, were dying. But so there was, a, there was an increase and there still is because we're still not out of it, but there's been an increase in mental health vulnerability throughout the world, but we're just gonna focus in on America. So. What do you recommend when the environmental stressors kick in and they start machine gunning you? What do you recommend at that point? That's a question I get a lot. How do you stop it? Yeah, and that's a question I always hear all the time too. And I think Mm. the answer depends on, you know, first off the willingness of the person, but this is a little term that I came up with that I think um, I always tell people. It's called emergency joys. So it's essentially a coping skill, but it's a little bit more fun than that. Say it again. Emergency joys. Emergency joys. I love that. Wow. And so essentially all it is, is that when you find yourself being overwhelmed throughout the day with maybe losing a job, losing a loved one, a variety of whatever the things are, and they're just like you said, machine gunning at you. And emergency joy is kind of like a little pocket of peace that you can Mm. step into for five minutes or so. That's just going to allow you to forget about everything that's going on and just be in your space. You know, kind of like being mindful. I love it emergency joys, a pocket of peace. I love it. Great. Go ahead. And so that's something I came up with. I'm trying to get the trademark on it. So you need to get the trademark on it. I mean, it's brilliant. People need that. We need that. I hope we need those little things that are so monumental. Go ahead. Exactly. And that's the thing with emergency joys is they can be so simple. And I always share what mine were. You know what mine was? I had three, three really big emergency joys during those really deep parts of my depression where I needed it. The first one was watching Seinfeld, the TV show, every yeah. day. 
That was my first one. The second one was listening to my favorite music. I had this playlist. I would listen to it. And the third one was so simple. It was just eating my favorite breakfast every morning. That's it. <gasps> I it was love it. Right? It's so simple. Those, but those three emergency joys gave me that pocket of peace to either start my day or within the day to give me a break from that machine gunning stuff of the outside world coming at me and really kind of refreshed me and said, okay, after I was done with my emergency joy, I'm ready to attack this life again. I'm ready to get back into the world because I feel refreshed. And that's why it's so important. I think. Well, and I think at the time, I, I mean, when you're, you're rewarding, but you're also comforting yourself with these emergency joys is that you're increasing the serotonin and, and you're actually decreasing that cortisol and adrenaline and, and, and stress. So it's working. Oh, that's, that is so brilliant. And talk about it more. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad to hear someone from the clinical world too approves of it. That's awesome. That makes me happy. Um, yeah, but one of the, the, the reasons I came up with the term is kind of like this. You know, when you're going through life sometimes and you're really in a dark place, you need something that's kind of like that last resort that's not going to fail anytime when it's that emergency time. And, you know, some joys are good on some occasions, but other times they can't get it done for you. Well, I think we all have those couple core things in our lives that every time we turn to it, we have a little hope. It brings us a little smile and it puts a little bit of light into our lives. And they do it every single time, no matter what. And that's why I came up with that term emergency joys, because it's an emergency and you need some type of joy to be brought into your life at that time. That's going to pull you out no matter how difficult things are. And you know, I've learned from experience. And also, you know, something that I kind of applied through what I've learned, too, um, in other ways. Well, Scott, you also talk about the darkest moments in your life, the depression. What was the, do you, was there one cardinal event, the darkest thoughts and feelings that is most reminiscent or the turning point? Yeah, you know, I think for me when I was in college, that really, really darkest moment was just where I got to a point where I was saying every single day, like, I hate who you are, Scott. I hate who you are, Scott. I hate who you are. Mm. And I was just saying it every day when I looked in the mirror and I got to a point where I was like, okay, if I keep saying this, you know, I, I don't know where my life's going to go because if I don't like who I am, how can I like anyone else? How can I be good to anyone else? How can I have any joy whatsoever? You know, it starts with that self-confidence. So I need to work on that. And I got to a point where I said, okay, you know what? saying this to myself, being stuck in this dark place, it's not helping me and it's not going to help anybody else. And I don't know how to get out of it, but I've got to try. And for me, that's that self-loathing of myself over time got me to the point where I said, this is the darkest moment. I can't keep doing this. I need to make a change. And that's when I started to do so. Was it, were they scary times for you like they are for a lot of people? Did you have thoughts of not wanting to live anymore or how did that go? Yeah, so I would definitely say, I'll be honest, I had some suicide ideation. Um, I never had a thought out plan. I never seriously considered taking my life. No, um, but I did have ideation. Of course, of course, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but I always knew, you know, in the deepest, deepest part of my soul, I always knew, hey, you know what? Things won't always be like this. And I had that hope on the inside, even on my darkest day, when I remember kneeling on my floor, just crying for hours, I mm. still had that hope that it will not be like this forever. Something on the inside telling me that. And a big part of that was my faith, which is something that's big for me. And I just knew that, hey, it will change eventually. And I think for me, that's what kept me going forward during those really, really dark times. And thankfully things did change. So <laughs> that's what I always try to tell the high school kids too, is because- yeah going through those tough times, it's not always even always that event that's going on in your life that is the problem. It's that interpretation of the event. And, you know, as we know, when you're those high school kids, your prefrontal yeah. cortex isn't fully developed yet, right? So, you know, maybe I don't get asked to the prom, seems like the end of the world. Um, so that's something I always try to let the younger kids and, know. And they don't have a sense of control as it is anyhow in high school. And it's all about trying to figure out who you might want to be. What, what do you tell them to encourage them to get yeah. through those moments, Scott? Of course. Well, one of the things that I always tell people is that, look, you know, there's always all kinds of pressures and all kinds of, you know, persuading to be this or to be that in high school. But what you really need to find out is look to the things in your life that you're passionate about. Look to the things in your life that really make you happy and bring you some joy. 
and start kind of navigating more towards those things to find out who you are, who, what you want to be and what you want to do with your life. Because how are you ever going to be happy if you're trying to do something you hate it, but everyone says it's cool. You know, you're not going to be happy. You might like the feeling of being quote unquote cool, but you're not mm -hmm. truly going to be happy. And that's going to crumble apart years down the line. So I always tell people, Hey, look, even if it means you're outcasted for a little bit, even if it means you're not part of a cool crowd, in the long run, finding what you like and what you're passionate about and what makes that fire on the inside of you go, find those things and find friends within that area. You know, find different opportunities and jobs and internships, whatever it is in that area, because in the long run, that's what's going to make you happy even as you for the rest of your life, not just for a couple of years. Well, and what do you, in particular, with the school, you know, middle school and high school, even elementary school, um, but what, what do you find is their biggest challenge psychologically, emotionally? Mm, I would definitely say the constant comparison, okay. uh, just a feeling of um, inferiority to one another. I think that's what I've found with the people I've talked to. That's one of the biggest things because somebody will light up with a smile about telling me something, right? Mm -hmm. But then this other person will say, oh, well, that's not this or that's not that. And you just see the, you know, life gets sucked out of the sucked person's face. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I think that comparison and social media certainly doesn't help. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of great things about social yeah. media. Amen. You know, that's how you. I put my brand. But at the same time, that constant comparison, mm -hmm. That constant, I have to be this, I have to be that, is draining. It's mentally exhausting. And when we get exhausted, that's when we fall into, you know, susceptible moments where we could turn to addiction, where we could fall into depression, severe anxiety, as you know, whatever it might be. Um, so that's one of the biggest challenges I see. Bullying. Were you ever bullied because you were different, because you were an isolate? Yeah, so I wasn't, I wasn't severely bullied, never. Um, I always kind of just kept to myself. And I had my little group of friends. You know, like any kid, I had times where people said things, this or that. But for me, the biggest thing was this. I kind of bullied myself. That was my biggest issue. Because I always was so different and so outside. And I would get mad and say, Scott, why are you this way? You know, why don't you fit in with this world? And I didn't understand. And nothing I could do could ever get me to fit in. I'm telling you, nothing. And I got to a point eventually where that became my greatest strength. That's why I'm doing this now. But, you know, when you're a kid, you don't always see it that way. Um, so for me, it was just that self-bullying, that self-critic that was so incredibly mean. And I think a lot of times that can be the meanest one. And I see that a lot with especially the gifted and talented, especially the, the kids that are outside of the mean, the kids that navigate life differently and they're not even aware of how incredible they are. But along with that, at the opposite end of the continuum is that elusive, you know, uh, gulf of perfection, which we know, hey, it's a problem. Process. There is no perfection. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because this is your area of expertise, is what, what are some of the myths about depression? You've lived it. You talk about it. What are some of the stereotypes and myths that we can debunk? Yeah, so a lot of times people say, you know, depression is, you know, something that you can catch from a neighbor or catch from a family member. Like, oh, my mom's depressed, so now I'm depressed. And I understand where people are coming from from that, because when you're around somebody who's in that environment, like, you know, it can rub off on you. But as far as actually, quote unquote, catching depression, which is something I have a lot of kids ask me about, you know, okay. that is, okay. you know, not something that we, it, that's not how it works. Um, but another one, another big myth that I hear a lot about depression is people will say, you know, oh, when you're depressed, you just get out of it, you know, just deal with it and just move on. It just goes away. But as we know, depression doesn't always just go away, but rather it's something we have to learn how to cope with and kind of mm -hmm. handle and address in a proper way. If we just say, oh, one day it'll go away, it might not because we're not working on it in a proper way. And that's another myth I have to debunk a lot of times because some people say, oh, I was depressed for like two weeks and now I'm good. And a lot of times I'll say, well, that may not actually have been depression. That may have just been, you know, a passing mood. And that's something mm -hmm. that we want to differentiate, obviously, is because depression is a serious thing. The chemical imbalance in the brain the symptoms that go along with it are very severe and can bleed into other life-threatening things. And if we're just kind of crying wolf and saying, oh, I'm depressed because we had two down days, I, I don't think that's a very good thing that, um, that people are doing. So that's another kind of myth that I have to debunk is that, you know, it doesn't just go away. Right. And what are some of the symptoms that people can look for regardless of their age? Of course. Yeah. A lot of different symptoms. I think I'll just kind of run through some of the ones okay. that I see the most commonly um, one that I see a lot in high school kids and also even people my age, I'm 24, is kind of like the, um, the joking, 
quote unquote, but not really joking. You know, that talking about, I feel like my life is worthless. I feel like I don't want to live anymore. I feel like I don't matter. You know, anytime that somebody's saying these phrases about hurting themselves or hurting somebody else, we have to take that seriously because that person is really struggling on the inside because why else would they joke about something like that? And I think that's a symptom that isn't brought up much that we really have to talk about is that feeling and the outward projection of that feeling of okay. worthlessness. So that's one of them. Obviously, we have the stuff such as the drastic change in our appetite and sleeping patterns. We see that a lot. And not just, oh, today I ate a ton of food or yesterday I didn't, but prolonged, you know, three, four weeks consistently of that increase in appetite or decrease in appetite, increase in sleeping, decrease in sleeping, things like that, of course, we always want to pay attention to. And obviously, it's usually drastic. It, like I said, it's not just, oh, I got two hours less of sleep tonight. It'll be, I slept all day or I hadn't slept in days. And one of the other symptoms that I'll bring up real quick, and I think this is a big one that not everybody pays attention to, is the uh, inability to concentrate. Yes. A lot of times when we hear that, we think, oh, what's ADHD? Or, oh, the person's just distracted. Of course, that can happen. But when somebody is depressed, you know, you cannot focus on anything. I remember when I was depressed, I could, I would sit there and be like, okay, I'm going to listen to the professor. I'm going to take notes. And I couldn't do it. I could not do it because all I could focus on was how I was feeling and the, the thoughts that were tied up inside of me. So I think that uh, inability to concentrate is something that goes over a lot of people's head and we don't think about it as a depression symptom, but in fact, mm -hmm. it's actually one of the telltale signs. So I think yeah. that's just, kind of a, yeah. Did you have, uh, as one of the symptoms, difficulty getting started and ending tasks or like even in school with homework or at work, getting to work? Oh, yeah, yeah. So with school, you know, me in school, I was, look, I was never a big fan of schoolwork my whole life. I always couldn't stand it, but I knew I had to do it just to get to where I wanted to be. But when I was really in that deep part of the depression, I, I, would, I would always, I couldn't finish anything. You know, I would start something and then I'd just be like, ah, what's the point? I don't matter anyways. And something like that would happen. Or I would try to finish a project and just say, ah, what's, what's the use? You know, I can't ever do anything right anyways. And, and a lot of times when we're seeing things like that, we want to make sure that we're addressing that too. And it could be a possible sign of depression. That was for me, something I saw a lot. How did your family deal with it? How did your mom and dad deal with it? How did, how did that go down? I mean, um, it, it's very difficult for parents, whether they're, you know, parenting together or single, it is very difficult with a child or, to, or an adolescent or a young adult uh, to try and get through that depression or as a parent to try and understand it. So what how did it work with you? And then what do you recommend parents do now? Yeah, my parent, my family was one of the biggest reasons why I was able to get through it. My mom, and my dad, and my two older sisters, they helped me on every step of the way. They were the people who I could talk to about it. They helped me to work through a lot of my feelings. Mm -hmm. They were the ones that pulled me through. It wasn't me. It was, it was really my family who helped me a lot. And so one of the things that helped me the most is just them being able to listen to what I was saying. Because I felt like I couldn't talk to friends. I, I didn't feel comfortable talking to teachers or even counselors. But when I talked to my family, I felt like that was an open spot where they weren't going to judge me. And they would just listen. And by getting that off my chest, I would immediately feel a little bit better. And so for my family, they were there with me every step of the way. Um, and when my, my family is so close to the point where if I'm not feeling well, no one's feeling well. And vice versa. Mm. So it was really hard on everybody. But because of that, we all grew stronger, which was awesome. And for the second part of your question, as parents, what they can do to help, mm -hmm. one of the things that I think is best is that sometimes parents have a tendency to want to fix everything, right? Like, right. Oh, my child, yeah. Understood. Totally understood. I'm not a parent, but I'm sure I'll be the same way when I, when I get, have kids one day. So I think, though, it's important to remember to make time for allow your kids just to share and say, hey, you know what? This is a sharing moment. I'm not going to try to fix it. I'm not going to try to say this or that or why are you doing this or that. Just this is a share. And just create that space where you can allow your child to share what they're feeling, what they're going through without kind of having that judgment or without having that fixer upper hat on either. And I think that's really, really important. What about though with uh, middle school adolescents where they're less inclined to share, where it's more difficult for them to open up in general, or if they're not comfortable sharing with their family. I hear a lot from adolescents, I don't want to disappoint them, or they'll get mad. What, what do you suggest or recommend, Scott? Yeah, well, for the kids, I would say it's important to 
make sure that you're finding some type of trusted adult to talk to. Maybe if you don't feel comfortable to your parents, maybe talking to one of your teachers, a counselor, somebody, and getting those feelings out. Because as we know, when you bottle them up and keep them on the inside, that's one of the worst things that we can do. So for the kids, you want to make sure you're still finding someone to talk to. Now for the parents, on the other hand, I think what's really important is to, is to keep making that effort. Because kids, they're smarter than we think sometimes. If you keep continually making an effort and showing, instead of telling, but actually showing that you care and that you're there for them, eventually they're going to reciprocate. You know, you may get the door slammed in your face 10 times, but I can tell you this, that child is secretly appreciative that you were trying to help them, that you care, that you're showing that you care. And I think the problem we have sometimes and understood is that the parents, they get frustrated say, well, my kid won't open up, they won't talk to me. And then they get mad and it turns into two people just kind of butting heads. Mm -hmm. Where I think it's really important as a parent to continue to make those efforts and to show, hey, you know what? You may not want to hear from me, but I'm going to show you I'm here. I'm showing you that I care. And over time, I think that's going to be the best thing you can do as a parent. And what about the person, the kid, the adult that doesn't have anybody? Where do you recommend they reach out? Especially when, during those dark times, when... There doesn't seem to be the light. And you mentioned the dark and the light a lot. And I, I think those are great descriptors of depression and coming out of the depression or falling into it. So what do you recommend if the individual, because depression is also a very lonely thing when you talk to people. It's a journey within the self with very little insight, <clears throat> excuse me, outside of the self. What do you recommend? Yeah, there's a couple of things that you can do. And I think it depends on the person. But I think if you're, you're someone who doesn't have anybody, the first thing that I would do is, is to find a way to get those feelings out in any type of way. And it starts with maybe writing, with maybe taking a video of yourself talking about how you're feeling. You know, when you do this, in a way, it almost kind of feels like you're talking to somebody. You're writing a story and it's like you're going to mm. give it to someone. You're taking a video and you're staring back at it. It almost kind of feels like there's somebody there with you. But the reason I say this is because if we don't get it out of ourselves first, you know, how are we ever going to be comfortable enough to share it to anybody? So we have to work on that self-introspective part first to really get that out in a way that we're comfortable with. And then after that, if you don't have anybody, I think it's important for every student to know that there are still people, every kid to know there are people who care, whether it's one of your teachers, one of your professors, maybe a coach, there are people. And sometimes it's up to us, though, to take that first step to reach out to them to say, hey, I'm struggling. I know maybe we're not super close, but I need someone to talk to. Just so that way that you're not staying in that alone place because it's so difficult when you're there. And, and I know how hard it is to do. Trust me, I didn't want to talk to people about it at first either. But I think there comes a point in time where we have no choice but to do that. Mm -hmm. And we have to if we want to you know, move past it. So your journey, your treatment, what kind of treatment did you receive? Yeah, so my story is a little bit different. You know, first off, I did a lot of research on my own. Like I said, mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy and other practices I applied to my life just by doing research, by mm -hmm. watching different videos, by reading books on clinicians and stuff. And that really helped me a lot for years. However, when the pandemic started, I guess about a year and a half ago at this point, yeah. for the first time in my life, I started to go see a therapist. And I okay. went for about six or seven months and I found it helped me tremendously. And I think it's interesting because it shows that everybody's process and journey to recovery is a little bit different. Yes. You know, for some, yeah. medication and therapy is necessary. For others, it's just one or the other. For other people, maybe it's an alternative method. But it's about whatever works best for you and gets you those results that you need to see is what I would recommend. And I think for me, my story kind of gives a little hope that, hey, you can do it a different way if that's what works for you. Um, and I think it's all about trial and error. You know, I always hear people say, oh, Scott, I've been on a therapy for three months and it's not working. Or, oh, Scott, I've been on medication for, you know, three weeks and it's not working. But mm -hmm. as we know, the medication, it takes at least four to six weeks to start to mm -hmm. see that, you know, yes. that change. And psychotherapy also takes some time. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you just need to try a different therapist or a different medication. It's, see, it's all a trial and error until we find that kind of magic elixir that works for us. And uh, it's a process, but I think it's worth it. And it's worth the work that you have to put into it. So what did you gain from therapy? You know what I gained the most? How to ask myself the right questions. Yeah, okay. I want to know more. Yeah, yeah. You know, like for years, I would always just say, oh, why, Scott? Why? And I would never dive deeper into it. But what I learned through therapy is that, okay, why am I feeling this way? And what's making me feel this way? And what is the real core issue here? 
And once I learned to ask those right questions to my behaviors, I started to be like, okay, you know what? Now I'm understanding my own mind a little bit more and where I'm coming from. Whereas before I wouldn't, everything was so reactive with me. I was never being proactive. I was just like, okay, I messed up here. How do I fix this? Or, oh, this is going on in my life. How do I fix it? Rather than going back to the source and saying, why did I act this way? Why did I say this? Why did I feel that way? And that's what helped therapy really helped me with a lot. It's just asking the right questions throughout my life. So did you find it was the combination of taking your feelings versus the evidence or the facts? What, what, was, what were the key elements that put it all together for you to make you stop and question what you were feeling and thinking and then change your behavior? Do you, can you give us a little bit more about that? Of course, I think a big thing for me was, you know, the evidence that I was providing back to myself was super, super key. You know, if I was, um, and it goes back to the, you know, the TFA triangle, false feelings, actions, right? You know, I was telling myself I was worthless. I would then feel worthless and then I would stop studying for a test, you know, basic example, something like that. But I worked on really changing that evidence because I found when I was applying that to my mind, that was really what I was going to, you know, base my life off of because I'll go by what I see. And if I'm seeing, oh, Scott, you're failing all your classes or, oh, Scott, you know, you're not getting asked out on any dates, whatever it is, that that, that was going to determine my life. So I found, all right, if I can work on making sure I change that evidence that I'm providing to myself, then I'm really going to be able to be in a happier state and the state that I want to be in. So if I were to ask you, Scott, describe yourself in one word, what would that one word be? Ooh. Jody, that's a great question. Um, in one word, I would say, huh. I don't want to say resilient because it seems a little mainstream. So I'm trying to think of a little something a little bit deeper, a little bit more unique. Uh, I would say probably either resilient or, um, or empathetic. You know, I think empathetic. that's what I... Okay. Yeah, empathetic for other people just because I know what I went through and, I, and my whole life's purpose and journey here is to help other people get through that too. And if I'm not being empathetic, how in the world can I do that? So I really think those two, resiliency and showing empathy are the two words that drive my life forward and uh, everything I want to do. Well, and then we go back to emergency joys mm -hmm. and your pockets of peace. And Absolutely. so um, I, and I definitely want to get to all the things that you're doing, but talk to us about Scott and love, Scott and relationships after coming out of the dark, because one of the first things we know with depression is the lack of self-worth. We don't feel we deserve love. We don't know how to give it. And we, we don't feel that anyone could ever love us. So Scott and love, what about that? That's a great question. I, I see a whole change there, Scotty. Yeah, that's that's something. Um, yeah, so when I was in high school, I never, I wanted to be in a relationship more than anything, but I was way too shy. I was way too caught up in my depression to ever really pursue that. And I didn't start dating until you know, my first girlfriend, I was uh, 21 years old. You know, that's when okay. things start. And then I, I dated her for a bit. You know, ultimately I, I didn't feel that she was right for me. And then I dated somebody else. Um, let's see, back in the pandemic, and I broke up with them a few months ago, because again, I didn't feel like they were right for me. So right now I'm single, been single for about, I guess, almost five months. And that is, that is a big thing for me. You know, I'm always trying to, you know, make sure I get my validation for myself, not from somebody else. But I find that it's difficult sometimes trying to find that right girl, because, you know, I know what's important to me, and I know what my values are, and I know, you know, the way that I want myself to act. And I feel like because of what I've been through, when I see somebody else not acting in that type of way, I'm very quick to just kind of be like, okay, nope, like I'm not, I don't want to go down this road again. I'm not going to be there. So yeah, relationships and Scott is something I'm still trying to work on. <laughs> we all are. <laughs> so, so, so pulling out of those relationships when you realize it's not a fit or if it ends, that those moments and times, those snapshots and times, in time can be monumental as far as, you know, leading us down a trajectory of relationships in the future. So, and it, especially if somebody has a history of depression, that vulnerability, when we dare to fall in love or fall into a relationship, 
are critical moments. So how do you pull out of it without dropping down into the depression or questioning yourself again, which is what I think most people do in relationships, whether they're single or, or with a significant other or married? Yeah, that's a great question because I think it, you could become so susceptible to falling back into that depression mm -hmm. when you go from being with someone and spending every day with them to all of a sudden being alone. Um, but I found for me, it's actually almost kind of the reverse. You know, when if I'm with somebody and I'm not totally happy and, and you know, obviously no relationship is perfect, but if I'm seeing some really things that are really bothersome to me and I, I'm, I'm not um, with the right person, I find it's easier for me to slip into depression again that way because then I'm not paying attention to my thoughts, my feelings, what's going on. All I'm focusing okay. on is all the negatives about the relationship. So it's a little bit okay. reversed for me. So I'd okay, rather- say, say that again though, because I need to better comprehend that. Yeah, of course. So for me, when I'm in a relationship and if I know it's not right for me mm -hmm. and if the person's not giving me the things I need or showing me the things that I really value, for me, I find myself it's easier to fall back into that depression because I'm no longer being aware of my thoughts, my feelings, my actions, you know, the evidence in my head. I'm not being aware of that because I'm so consumed by- this person's not right for me, or I've got to try to change this to make this person right for me. I got to do something different so they like me more. And I become so consumed with that mm -hmm. that I'm no longer paying attention to my own mental health. And then that's when I can just boom, slip back into that depression. Good again. point. That's scary for me. So that's why I'd rather, you know, leave that relationship because I know I've been alone a lot in my life. I can deal with that. I can manage that. I can handle that. And I'm also able to then pay attention to my mental health, making sure I'm in a good state rather than um, you know, having it just be covered if I'm in a relationship. So what you're saying is that if certain behaviors or certain things from the other person in the relationship triggers you to where you're questioning yourself, then it's time for you to examine whether it is a good fit or not. Exactly, 100%. Good, good. I, I, that is really profound. I like that a lot. So I have another question, a little bit off the topic, but... What I get a lot is people who are, um, you know, the online dating or, mm -hmm. or that dance and rhythm of trying to get a rhythm of meeting that person and then oh. they're ghosted, they're benched or, you know, iced or whatever and dealing with that rejection. What do you say about that and what do you recommend? Absolutely. And let me first off, I'm telling you, I'm in that world right now because okay. you know, for a while I, I was, um, after I broke up with my last girlfriend, I wanted to be single for a bit because I just felt emotionally drained. But now, you know, I'm back on that whole, like that doing that dance, right? Yeah. Because you get to know someone, you think, oh, you get excited and then they're gone. Ooh, goes, yeah. Whatever. yeah. And that rejection is really tough. But I think what I always say to people is you have to remember this, you know, are we going to give somebody else the power in their hands to have our, to whether we feel validated or not, or does that validation come from within, come from us, come from what we tell ourselves? Because if we're allowing somebody else to hold the validation for us, you know, people can take that away whenever they please, right? So if I'm saying I'm not valid unless I go on three dates this week, that means my validation's purely coming from somebody else. And okay. that's a slippery slope to go down. And I think what I always talk to people about is saying, hey, look, we've got to work on finding that validation, finding, being secure with ourselves before we get into that space where we're ready to date. Because then if we're relying solely on somebody else for our joy, our happiness, validation, as I said, that's, that's tough because then if they leave and they take that away, now we're left with absolutely nothing. Almost in a similar way to how I felt when I got cut from the basketball team, right? Different mm. circumstances, that same type of feeling. Which trigger, which trigger? The past triggers the future. And at any time, the past, we can experience it in the present, whether we realize it or not. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to people? If there were three things to say to people doing the online dating, what would you say to buffer them? What, it, what should the mantra be, especially when people are ghosted or just don't respond or show yeah. up? <laughs> it's a great question. And, you know, I got to make a note of that to myself too. So I'd say for three things though, not in any particular order. Number one, take it slow. Because I think if we try, sometimes what I've seen myself and other people have done to me is, you know, everybody's lonely. We live in a lonely world, especially those who are single. We get that. But if you try to jump in too fast to something, you know, what's going to happen is, is ultimately it's probably going to break things apart too quickly. And it's probably going to get to a point where somebody is not comfortable with that level yet. And then it's going to lead to breaking off. And then when it breaks off, we're again left with that nothing feeling. So I would say start by taking it slow. 
Number two for the online dating, I would probably say, um, you know, search for search for somebody who, or not search for somebody who, you know, make sure that you're having that validation in yourself first. You know, don't search for somebody to complete you. I think that's a common misconception. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm looking for someone to complete me. I, I don't look at it that way. I think you're looking at someone to be an addition to you and you an addition to them. I like right? that. An addition oh. to you. Right. Because okay. think about it. If I'm going through the online dating saying, I need someone to complete me, then that, that's implying that I'm a broken person, that, that I don't have myself together, that I'm requiring somebody else and everything that they have to make me whole and to validate me. And that's not what we wanted. We don't want to be going down that line. We don't want to be you know, thinking that way. Mm-hmm. But if we're looking at it as, oh, I'm an addition to them and they're an addition to me. Now we have two people who are their own people, who are separate, who are great, coming together to create something even bigger. But if they do break apart, they're still both their own people rather than trying to be like, oh, I need to take that piece away from you back. Mm-hmm. I need to take that piece away from you back. And so I think that's the second thing is look for someone as an addition rather than a completion. And uh, one more thing, I would just say, um, don't take it so personally. Uh, I think a lot of times on online dating, not everybody has unfortunately the same motives. And sometimes people can get upset if someone's ghosted or this or that. But at the end of the day, we don't know what's going on in their life. They may be just on a break from the relationship. They may be looking for, Mm -hmm. you know, just somebody to talk to. They may be, you know, not on the same page as we are. So I think sometimes we have to remember, it's not always our fault if something happens, if we get ghosted, but rather it's just, you know, it's just playing the game sometimes. And if we could go into it with that lightheartedness, knowing, hey, I'm not going to take it personally, we're going to probably be better at finding the, the right match for us. Wonderful. And you know, I have to say, this is where I have to say my belief is emotion has no chronological age because mm-hmm. what I've been privileged, privileged to, to see is with my, my clients, my patients, is that regardless of age, whether they're 10, 16, 20, 40, 50, 80, that need to be loved and give love is so paramount and falling in love or, or, or having a new relationship is the same excitement regardless of the age. So what you've just told us applies to all ages. And then the other thing is, I, I just want to get your take on, is it okay for people not to be in a relationship? Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up, Jody. I think it 100% is. Uh, mm-hmm. I see this a lot of times, especially with some of the girls that I have for friends. And both my sisters now, they're in very serious, rela- actually one's married, the other one's in a very serious relationship. So, but I remember used to hear this from them too when we were younger. A lot of times people feel like if they don't have that significant other that, you know, they're not as good as somebody else or there's something wrong with them or, or they're not living up to societal standards and there's all those pressures. But I think it's important for us to know that, hey, look, you know, at the end of the day, what makes you a good person, what makes you who you are, doesn't come from whether you have someone to post Instagram pictures with and mm-hmm. little cute stuff with. You know, that doesn't make you who you are. What makes you who you are is the person on the inside and what you do, how you care about people, how you help people, the unique traits about yourself that no one else has. That's what makes you who you are. And if that means being by yourself for a little bit, then that's okay. We don't have to constantly be with somebody in order to feel, you know, validated i keep bringing that word up because it's true Mm -hmm. or to feel like we're fitting in with society it's totally okay to be alone sometimes and not only that jody i think it's really important to spend that time alone Mm -hmm. because if you're constantly with another person how are you ever going to find out truly about you and your interests and what you like what you don't like who you are how are you going to figure those things out and as painful as it is as difficult as it is to be alone and i get it trust me i've been there so many times it is so essential because when you're in that dark place, in that dark valley in life, that's where you grow. You know, think about what a valley is in the scientific sense. It's a low piece of land between two higher pieces of land, right? So that yeah. means there's a lot of opportunity for water and growth. Same thing in our lives when we're in a valley, you know, a lot of opportunity for growth. It's painful, it's dark, but we can find those hidden gems that are going to give us that strength and resiliency to keep moving on. And you only find that though, when you're alone in that dark place. I think that's important to know. Your best day ever, Scott. Hmm. My best day ever? (laughs) Probably when I graduated college. (laughs) Okay. Why? Because it was at that moment that I finally felt like the chains were off me, that I could truly pursue what I wanted to do in my life. I could truly pursue on work creating this brand and working to speak, to help people and to really create this vision that I had and make it a reality and not have to worry about pointless tests and 
projects on things that I wasn't really even that interested in. So um, for now, best day ever, graduating college, but I'm sure in a couple of years, that'll definitely change. <laughs> so moving forward, tell us about your brand. Tell us about your podcast, your workshops that I had mentioned. Tell us about them. Yeah, so Scotty P Inspiration is a brand that I created um, almost about a year ago at this point. And my overall goal, like my slogan says, and my podcast says, is to navigate life through the lens of hope. And I work with really anybody. You know, I'll work with, you know, conferences, adults, kids, uh, millennials, whoever it is. You know, I try to just want to be that everyday voice for that everyday person to let someone know, hey, you know what? Life is hard. Let's acknowledge it. But let's also work on how we can move forward through that hardness and that difficulty and find those little pockets of peace in this moment today. And I do that through a variety of mediums, social media. I'm very active with posting little inspirational videos mm -hmm. and my podcast, which I do once a week, which is the lens of hope. And then I also have a YouTube channel in which I post videos as well, just talking about everything from cognitive behavioral therapy practices to what do you do when this happens in your life to just acknowledging that things are hard sometimes. And I do this in a way just so I can help people in the, in the biggest way that I can. And I'm still, you know, growing my brand. It just started recently. So I'm still trying to get more clients and more opportunities. So it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. That. Yeah, I appreciate it. And that that's, this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life, because my passion is to help other people to get through those times, because I know that it's so hard. And if you don't have that right person to kind of guide you along, you can get lost. And I want to make sure that I help other people that went through the same experiences that I had in my life and let them know that there is hope. There is light. We can reach it here's how we're going to do it. And that's ultimately what I want to do. So how do the older people, older than you, respond to you? Because you're a young person with so much wisdom, so much self-motivation and research and putting it all together. I mean, you're, you're, wow, way advanced as far as just being able to integrate it all and put together a very challenging a field, if you will, motivating people, addressing depression, finding their path, coming out uh, of, of the darkness into the light and having hope. So how do individuals older than you respond to you because you are young? That's a wonderful question, Jody. And I, I found it to be a couple of different ways. It's either one, they're really impressed and just say like, this mm -hmm. is amazing what you're doing, Scott, and they're very um, you know, complimentary. Or I get these people who look at me like, well, you're just a kid. You know, I'm twice your age. What have you been through? You don't know anything about life. You know, come on. What could you possibly know about struggle? And I understand where those people are coming okay. from. I get that because there may be someone who's 40, 50 years old, who's been struggling for a long time, a long time. Yeah. And all of a sudden you have this kid who's half your age telling you these things. I think it brings out people's insecurities and it makes them feel like, man, you know, if this kid's 24 and saying this, I'm 50, what's wrong with me? And that's not what I want to do because I want to help everybody because I don't care about the age. I care about human beings and making sure that I help those souls on the inside get through that difficulty. But I think sometimes people will, um, you know, almost kind of view it as if I'm trying to act like I'm better than them or, oh, you're younger than me and you're going to tell me what to do, blah, 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 blah. And like I said, I understand that. But I think for the majority of people, mm -hmm. they're, they're really impressed with what the things I'm talking about, and they really connect with what I'm saying. Because all my presentations, everything I talk about is stuff that every single person on this earth at some point can relate to. And I put my hand to God saying that, because I don't talk about anything that's specifically only to Scott, or only to men, or only to women, or only to old or young. I'm talking about stuff that goes on in between the ears up here that we all deal with. And, um, you know, obviously you're going to have some people who aren't receptive to that. But and, and I think that's with all of us. And, and I think, again, emotion has no chronological age. Mm -hmm. And I think I know a lot of the times when people say, well, what do you know? And I'm like, well, you're right. I don't I don't know your life experience, but <laughs> this is what I can offer. And then teach me. What do you suggest I do to better guide or help? But I think. What you do, I think, affects everybody because it involves emotion and it's, it's, it's guidance. It's guidance. You're not telling people what to do. You're offering a way to get out of that, that dark area, to get out of that, that land of, no, that purgatory, if you will, that nowhere's land kind right. of thing. So I commend you. 
I commend you. And when I listen to you talk, I got to tell you, Scott, you're real. You're real. You're not putting on airs. You're not trying to, you know, uh, get on prime time. I mean, when you speak, you are speaking from your life experience and you've earned the right. <laughs> you've earned the right. Regardless of chronological age, you've earned the right. Yes, do things change with us as we age? They do. I can look back yesteryear and I look back today, but a lot of those templates of emotion from the very start are still here and will be there at the end. Absolutely. I, I love what you, well, first off, thank you for saying that. that and that's my whole goal is like, I just want to be real. I think a lot of times in this business, I think of some of the people that I look, not look up to, but who are on like the, the mountaintop, who are making tons of money, who are nationally world renowned. Mm -hmm. I almost get the feeling that they're just doing it because they want to sell a new book or they want you to follow them on Instagram. And I never want to be that way. I want to create this new field of, hey, look, I am doing this because this is what I went through. I want to help you. I want to be real. I want to speak to the everyday person. And that's ultimately my goal. And that's the only way I know how to do it. Um, so I, I'm thankful that you pointed that out. And it well, I'm, 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 I'm feeling you, you know, is, is what I'm saying is you're authentic, you're real. And that's, those are the individuals on this, on Inside America's Minds. They're people that really validate or have come from, you know, beginnings and are where they are through earning that right, whatever that may be. So right. I want to personally thank you for doing what you're doing. So tell us how people can reach you. Again, the Lens of Hope podcast. Go ahead and give us your, your website. And um, then I'm going to have you, if there was a message you want to leave to our audience, what might that be? But let's go ahead and start where people can get a hold of you. Yeah, awesome. So the first thing we'll start with is my website. So if you go on www.scottypinspiration.com and then on my website, you can see links mm -hmm. to everything else that I do. And then from there, we'll also go, we'll go down the list. The next thing is Instagram. So my Instagram handle is at Scotty P underscore inspo. You can check me out on Instagram, see all the inspirational videos that I'm constantly posting up, new content, all things like that. Then also we have Facebook. And at Facebook, I am at Scotty P Inspiration. You can check me out on that. And then I got YouTube. And at YouTube, I am Scotty P Inspo. So that's Scotty P and an I-N-S-P-O. And those okay. are the best ways to get in contact with me. And then, of course, like I said at the end, I got my podcast, which can be viewed on all platforms. And that is the Lens of Hope podcast with Scott Prendergast. And those are the best ways to get in touch with me. Thank you. I'm so technologically challenged that I don't have the little cues yet. You know that no <laughs> people are going to have to wait a long time for that one. But so, so thank you for, for letting our audience know. A message, Scott, a message that you would like to leave our audience. A message to leave the audience. Um, I will. Uh, I will say this. I think that in life, a lot of times we hear about people are saying they're lost. I feel lost. I feel like I'm just not going anywhere. I don't know who I am, what I am, what I'm doing. But I want to kind of change your perspective on that. Lost is this overarching feeling, right? It's very generic. It's like an umbrella feeling. But let's dive a little bit deeper and look underneath that at those feelings and what are there. And that's where we're going to find those feelings of disappointment, stagnation frustration. And it's those feelings that are morphing together to create that quote unquote lost overall feeling. And so I think what I want everyone to do in our lives is take a look at that overall feeling that's dominating your life, whether it's feeling lost, whether it's feeling inferior, whatever it is, and check out a little bit deeper underneath to see what those actual feelings are and learn to address those feelings and ask yourself the right questions on why you're feeling them. And then from there, that's going to lead us to the right answers that's going to help us to move forward past those obstacles, whatever that might be. So that's a little message just to share with everyone as we wrap it up. Thank you so much, Scott. Scott Prendergast, Lens of Hope. Wow, amazing. I hope we meet again. And I, I thank you. I thank you for the message you're sending and for being there for people and especially for spreading the word hope. We mm -hmm. have to have hope. Thank you so much, Scott. Take good care. Absolutely, Jody. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Inside America's Minds. And I'm looking forward to connecting. I'll definitely be emailing you again. And uh, just to thank you again for bringing me out here today. I really appreciate it and, and all the kind things that you said. It's awesome the show you're doing. I'm, I'm so thankful for it. It's my privilege. Thank you, Scott.
Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Dr. Jody J. DeLuca signing off. Take good care, America. Thank you for listening to Inside America's Minds. Don't forget to check out our YouTube channel, Inside America's Minds with Dr. Jody J. DeLuca. The views, information, and opinions expressed on the Inside America's Minds podcast series and on any other related social media pages are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any third party. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional psychological, psychiatric, or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay seeking treatment because of something you have heard on Inside America's Minds or have read on any other related social media pages. For emergency situations, be sure to call 911 or go to the nearest emergency department.